48-hour art check. Best of podcast. We go live Monday, Wednesday, Friday on YouTube. 9 p.m. California time, and you can join us there live in the chats or watch them later. You can always check things out at coreykerr.com slash 48HR. We take the best conversations from those live streams and rip them and put them into this podcast. Today's topic is quite a number of different things because we're going to be drawing from uh, some comments in the chat. This is our hundredth episode of the YouTube live stream, um, and so what you're listening to now, um, we are responding to people that are in the chat. And so, if you would like to be in the chat in the future, and you're listening to this after the fact, you can join us uh, on YouTube on Josh's YouTube channel and my YouTube channel, um, which you can always find at CoreyKerr.com/48HR. And uh, first we have um, Scott from the YouTube channel I'd Rather Be Drawing. Um, he said, uh, the science of paneling. And we've, we've done a number of episodes on, on different aspects of it. But one, one thing that I, that I thought would be kind of interesting is some, some basic do's and don'ts. Um, because sometimes uh, people can get so weird with the paneling that people are unsure what order to read them in. Or yeah. it kind of seems like they're not understanding what, what panels are. And so what you just said, Josh, about t- talk about that, about moments in time, because I think that'll be important. And then I, I, I kind of want to jump in on kind of like ordering and stacking and some of that. Yeah, I mean, the, there's a way that I've always viewed paneling, um, which is a, it, it sign- it's a signification of time. And it, it works in a way to kind of indicate how much time is going to pass and also to indicate a change in time. And so the order of the paneling kind of dictates the flow and the order of the story and the sizing and the, the panel choices kind of dictate the, like the, the tempo and the, um, and like, I guess like the volume of it. Um, and so, I, I, I like to think of it in those terms because, um, and, and I'm sure you're going to touch on this, like, but um, I like to think of it in those terms um, because if, if you, we, we kind of touched on this before, but if you're trying to play sheet music and it's out of order, it's not going to play the, the song. And so, you know, you need to, if you're writing music, like have it be readable. That's the purpose of writing music. Right. And it's the same thing with writing a story. It needs to be readable and legible and something somebody can follow. So, um, yeah, like what do you think on that? Yeah, so I think there are some general rules um, of thumb, and there's some good comments happening that I want to I want to get to in the, in the chat as well on the subject. But um, one is that in an English-speaking comic, uh, people are used to reading – uh, text left to right, top to bottom, right? And so, and, and this seems super basic, but sometimes it, it doesn't feel like people understand. Um, your top left corner of your page is where people are going to start because they are reading a book, right? And so that's where your first panel needs to be. The, the trick is from there, where do you go? And people who have been reading comics for years or even decades can kind of figure it out. Um, but I think you should actually design your panel structure uh, in the order of your panels um, for as if somebody it's the first time they've ever picked up, picked up a comic. And that doesn't mean that you can't be creative and it doesn't mean that you can't do interesting things. It just means that you need to understand, just like in typography, 
that certain choices that you're making are at the cost of re readability, or readability or legibility. And so, um, for example, if you there's kind of a, a spectrum, right? There's there's super simple like grid where every panel is the same. Um, and you just know that I'm going to go across the first row and then I'm going to go to the second row and I'm going to go to the next row, right? But you can kind of break those up. Some rules that you don't want to do is you don't want to stack panels on the left and then put a bigger panel on the right because if a panel is stacked, then I'm not sure whether I should go down that column or across that row. And once I go across that row, do I come back to the the second one in that first column, the ordering, yeah. the ordering becomes kind of, kind of confusing. Now there's a, there's a rule for everything and there are times where you should break that rule. And, um, Samurai Ox in the chats says, I like the idea of thinking about limbo and their random structure of their paneling, kind of like finding your way through a maze when he's in the TV. And that is one of my favorite comics. And in that comic, there is a spot where the main character is kind of sucked into this television and is being kind of tortured by this like tele shaman or this God of TV. And the intention of the creators is to cause confusion and to cause a feeling of like kind of being sucked into a vortex and being a little out of control. And so they yeah. go out of their way to intentionally break those rules so that it causes those emotions in the reader. But if they were yeah. to do that throughout the entire comic, it would lose legibility. I, I wouldn't know which balloons to read in order and, and, and all of that. Yeah, and I think I know I brought up like Chris Ware when talking about paneling, and I think it's important too because like even um, you know a lot of people will cite Scott McCloud, but before Scott McCloud even wrote like understanding comics, like he was looking at Chris Ware. So right. it's like it's a good it's a good source to look at for like weird timing stuff. And, and one of the other tricks is, like, if you're going to break the rules and you want it to just defy the norm, you need to give little indicators and little hints as to the order. You can move the eye through just your visual layout. So you could, in the case of what Corey was just explaining as a don't, you could make that a do if you include indications. Like, it could be something as obvious as just having an arrow, you know, right. but you could have other elements that function like an arrow or compositional elements that function like an arrow to yeah. where you break the rule and somebody follows it with breaking it without even realizing they're breaking a rule. Um, and, and I think if it's done effectively and, and this ties back to what Corey was saying, if you're breaking the rule effectively, people won't even know there was a rule being broken yeah. because it'll be that fluid. If, if it kind of creates a stop, that creates a jarring thing. So unless you want jarring in your story or you're trying to disorient people, you know, it's like the crossing the line conversation we had a couple episodes ago. Very similar. You know, there's reasons you can cross the line. A lot of them are to disorient people or make right. it feel like a passage of time. So it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's definitely a thing. But I think that's a good um, thing to mention because that's usually one of the first things – that like no matter how good like a new artist is when they first tackle comics, that's usually one of the big indicators. It's like you'll read it and you'll be like, I can't even where do I go next? Like yeah. wait, they're answering a conversation from here in this panel? Wait, but but like 
but this panel's in the wrong order, you know? So that, that's a really, if you go in aware before you, you know, draft a comic, like that's a huge, um, that'll give you a huge advantage, you know, cause you'll, you'll hopefully suck in more readers, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. Okay. Let's do the next one. So the next topic is, uh, oh, I had it. Um, this is from uh, Samurai Ox. Um, artists crowdsourcing ideas, um, what they should do for patrons, what they should, what prints they should make, uh, topics for 100 round run of things, which I think is a little meta uh, since we are crowdsourcing the topic of this current episode. Um, yeah, artist crowdsourcing ideas is kind of an interesting thing. Do you have any, do you have any thoughts on that? Okay, artist crowdsourcing ideas. Um, I don't really understand that question, actually. Okay, so I'll, I'll, I'll go while you're, while you're thinking about it. I, I think what we're saying is like what we've done here is instead of, instead of saying um, very dictatorially, uh, today we're going to talk about this, and I don't care what your input is, um, you kind of you kind of flip the classroom or reverse the you know the the uh, the whatever you want to call it, and and we said hey what do you guys want to hear about right let's let's Got come it. up with some ideas and come up with some topics, I I think that there are some really interesting things that can happen from this I also think there are some huge pitfalls and so I think I like the idea of it with some caution and so. Um, for example, I don't think doing a crowdsourced topic on a, a show like this three times a week would work. But every once in a while, it's great, right? And we've done, we've had, we'd have Marshall and other people um, give us great topics for things. Um, but I think if you're always relying on on that, you lose your own kind of uh, voice and sense of identity. And you, it's, it's yeah. like that politician that you don't know what they stand for, but you know that whatever's popular, they're going to do that. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I think knowing what your audience wants and knowing what your fans are looking for um, can give you some really good indications. Because if you're if you're like, oh, I could do this or I could do the other thing, and then everybody's like, do the other thing, and you don't really care one way or the other because you're excited about both of them, then do the one that everybody wants. And I mean, you know that that's only that's only good for everybody. Yeah, and I think. Um... Tying into that, especially for ideas, it depends. It depends on what kind of artist you want to be. Um, and this ties into, like, a lot of the, the benefits and then the negatives of, of crowdsourcing. The the real negative of crowdsourcing, just tacking on to what Corey was saying, um, is, like, you know, it's, it's a pretty easy way to gain popularity in the short term. But, um, but it tends to lead to really faulty decision-making. Um, to go with the crowd every time. And um, so w- when it comes to like making really strong like leadership choices, you never want to go with the crowd sourced all the time because often that will be wrong. Yeah. Um, and so so like very similarly, like if you want to be like a leader in art, I would think that you want to make stuff that you're connected to. And I think Corey will be in agreement with me. I don't know if we're in the majority. Um, of artists out there but you know we tend to like really harp on authenticity and kind of true authorship of work which is loaded and we've had topics on that in itself because it's kind of even ambiguous to say what is authentic and what's not could something feel authentic and not be authentic you know um but uh but i do tend to think you you lose authenticity 
when you're going with the audience and you're going to make art that doesn't much like a leader making decisions based on the crowd, the longevity and the history of how you'll be remembered will most likely not be very strong. Um, and I, I would whereas, say generally speaking, that's true. Yeah. Um, this is in generality. Yeah, yeah. But for, Ox, Ox brings up a really interesting point. Um, so for somebody running a Patreon, uh, you throw up a poll and you're asking people what you should do for their bucks, what you should do for their money. And, uh, and it's, inter- it's interesting because um, art is different and, and Patreon is, is, a, is, a different, is a different model because if a client hires me and I agree to get into that relationship, um, that contract based on what is laid out, I'm yeah. contractually, morally, ethically obligated to, to give the client what they want. I, I can yeah. negotiate with them and, and try to lead them in a direction. But, I mean, once I jump in with them, I need to give them what they want. But with uh, with supporters and readers and fans or whatever terminology you want to use, but but patrons, um, it's it's a different situation because that's a, that's a group of people that is choosing to support you as an artist rather yeah. than hire you as an artist. And I think there's a little bit of a difference there because I'd like to see what Ox wants to do. Now, now if Ox wants to go out and he wants to like gather some ideas and then, and then yeah. do his own thing on those ideas and crowdsource a, a list of ideas to kind of get the ball rolling, that's rad. Yeah. Um, but if I'm, if I'm supporting somebody on Patreon, I'm not doing that to control them. I'm doing that because I want to free them to, to, to allow them to express themselves. Yeah, and I think the the idea of a curated option is, is a lot more appealing to me personally because of that fact that it's curated. So it's stuff you want to do. So you say, here's three options. What appeals to you? That's a different question than what do you want me to do for money? And I think that that question, which is what it would be if you're just randomly polling your pa- patrons, like what do you want me to do, period, anything, like what – you got to think what kind of actions come from people who are like, Hey, give me money. I'll do whatever you want. Like that's usually doesn't result in good behavior all the time. And so like my point is, you know, um, I think you guys know what I'm probably like implying there, but it's like, I, I think, I think you can be, you can be a service industry artist, you know? Sure. And, and there's and nothing wrong I, with that. I, yeah. I mean, I do that. Um, for my day job, you know, um, I, I pretty much will draw what I'm told by clients, you know, and those clients, I don't even curate those clients cause I'm not involved in that process. Right. But, um, I feel like when I'm choosing to do art, when I'm like choosing to do art, that's for, you know, my own vision, that's like a different thing that I don't really want to sell out. And I think the way it becomes selling out there's a different, you know, we've talked about this, the difference between selling and selling out. Yeah. Um, and selling is just smart. <laughs> like, you know, you should try to make money doing things that are cool that you like doing, you know, um, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but there's a difference between that and just kind of opting to do whatever, even if it kind of kills your soul. So I think that maybe that's the catch is like, sure make a poll like that but make sure you don't end up locked into something that's going to kill your your uh spirit you know yeah. so yeah 
Okay, next question. This is from Scott. I, I like this question a lot. And I'm going to kick this to you, Josh, because I think you have this experience often. Um, yeah. Something I struggle with is knowing the right questions to ask. Uh, like when you go to a convention, your idol's in front of you, what do you ask? And I know you've expressed uh, kind of this experience with um, the uh, that, that group of cartoonists that you are a part of. Yeah. Where you've got you've got highly recognized, you know, multimillionaires. You've also got people that are like doing cartoons for the Atlantic and the New Yorker. You've got people that are syndicated, people that have been in the game for decades. Um, how do you have a conversation with them? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the one thing to just preface this with is there's usually not a time where I talk to an artist that I really admire, where I feel like super cozy and, and relaxed. Right. Uh, unless it's a friend. I, ha I have some friends, like some close friends who are like brilliant. Like they're, they're some of the best artists I know. And because I know them and I've kind of seen them in their journey, I don't feel as much intimidation not that I should feel less intimidation, just that I know them. So it's kind of like if you always had a friend who became a pro footballer or something, it'd be a little less weird to talk to that person because you've known them your whole life, you know? Right. Um, so it's always an uncomfortable thing. And I think the context matters. Like if it's at a convention and you're going to sign a book, you know, get a book signed, I think it's just appropriate to just like, Hey, you know what? Like, pour on their ego a little bit. I mean, you know, it's the, the, the world is full of like a lot of hate and, um, and I have noticed some people get nervous and they don't want to come across like they like someone too much. I've seen this at conventions and they'll go up to somebody and just instantly say like an insult about this person. They admire his work right. because they don't want to be seen as like a, a fanboy or something. And it's right. like, that actually has the, adverse result because yeah. it's like you've just walked up to a complete stranger and insulted them you know like so it's so that's something to keep in mind at a convention in the context of like um societies or like meetings or, or things like that i think that it's good to talk a little bit of shop but just getting in conversations that have to do with their interests and trying to find common interests even common interests outside of art one of my favorite people there, we just geek out about NASA. And uh, and it's probably one of the biggest artists there. And we click, and I'm not trying to get anything from them. Right. I just enjoy talking about, like, rocket science and space. I don't really understand it. I'm an artist, you know, but, but I'm, like, I'm fascinated by it because it's cool. And so, like, we'll get in these, like, two-hour-long conversations, whereas I'll see somebody who's trying to kind of get connections try to approach this guy and get blown off because it's like, and, and the guy's not being a jerk. It's just, he can sense that like all they're wanting from the dialogue is something for them. So like, I guess my biggest tip is like, try to do an exchange um, where you're actually trying to kind of give value and get value and you're, you know, show sincere interest in someone. It's like a, a key communication thing because otherwise you can come across like um, it's it, like I like I remember especially when I, when we were doing big illustration party time, our podcast at one point had like thousands of listeners. Like I think at its peak it was like twenty thousand people listening or something ridiculous. It was I remember the numbers were pretty ridiculous, mm -hmm. um, and I would get questions all the time 
that were really cool and perceptive that made me feel really empowered and feel like I had an audience. But then I get those occasional questions from somebody who's in a position we've all been in where they're desperate for work, they're a new artist, and they just want to weigh in. But there's this form of desperation that's really a turnoff, which is the question like, give me your client list. Hi, give me your client list. Yeah. And and that tends to have a bad result where it's like, you know, so I'd, I'd say like, even if that's your objective, hopefully it's not. Because I think if that is, it's going to be an awkward conversation. If you can kind of, even if that's an objective, um, but it's not your primary objective, then you can kind of couch it with some wisdom and like have a good conversation, enjoy it. Approach the conversation from that standpoint of like, I want to have a good conversation with a person. And then, hey, if we get something out of this, cool. You know, I, I don't know if that that's a good answer or a no, bad I, one. I, I think that's great. And I would just I would just add um, if if in any situation you are looking for what value you can squeeze out of someone, uh, you know, and you're approaching somebody and this is kind of an existentialist uh, tenant. Uh, is that uh, it is it is difficult to view other people as individuals because our initial reaction is to view them as um, objects in yeah. their relationship to ourselves. And so like um, the the idea that and, and I think this is a natural thing because we are all innately selfish, like we're born yeah. selfish. And so we approach the world like, what is this? What is this object and how can it benefit me or will it hurt me? You know, yeah. and, and unfortunately, I think we begin life kind of looking at people like that, you know, like the infant yeah. is like, you know, these two people need to feed me now, you know, like that's that's their role is they keep me warm and they feed me and they change my diaper. And then as you as you grow, you start to realize that other people are individuals and they have wants and desires. And so I would just say any person in any situation that you approach where you are trying to get something from them, um, just, just walk away, go do something else, you know, until you realize that, um, you know, that there's something that you can give. I, I saw recently on Twitter and I'm sure they were quoting somebody, um, somebody saying it's actually not who, you know, it's who you've helped. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and I've, and I've heard networking described as, uh, not how many business cards you acquire or how many business cards you give out, but how many connections you help other people make and how many problems that you solve for other people. And there've been a number of times in, in my, my network or whatever, you know, the people that I know, um, yeah. where I would say, Oh, actually, Hey, you need to go talk to this guy. Because you guys have, yeah. uh, you guys, you guys could really help each other out. He's looking for this, and she needs that thing, and 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 it's not like I broker that situation. And I'm like, hey, you know, give me ten percent of the transaction, blah 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 blah. You know, because I'm not in the relationship. I'm not in the business relationships. It's yeah. just like, if I know that I can help someone, I'm going to do that. And and I and I yeah. think that's the case. You know, if you're at a con or if you're meeting somebody, that, and I remember I've I've met some of my artistic heroes. And I try my hardest to not like, you know, like I remember I'll, I'll tell two quick experiences and we'll jump onto another topic. Uh, so if you guys have another topic, throw it, throw it in the chat. If you have another question or another topic. Um, one is I had backed this guy on Kickstarter. And it was one of the first Kickstarters that I backed. And I was super excited to see him at, see him at this con because I didn't know he was going to be at the show. And I recognized his work. Um, and I literally 
this is super embarrassing, pointed my finger full arm extended and was just like, hey, it's so-and-so. And I walked towards him with my arm still pointed at him. And then I was like, this is the weirdest interaction. And so then I tried to like make it not weird, but uh, I made it worse because I was like, uh, we had attended a similar he attended a sister university to the one I attended. And I was like, I went to, I went there too. And, and then it was just like really weird. And then I was like trying to make it not weird. And I just continued to like try to convince him that I'm not weird. Right. Yeah. What I was trying to get out of that relationship or that conversation was validation that, that he recognizes me as a, you know, an equal or something. I don't know. It was weird. And then in a different one, I, I, a guy who I'd been reading his comic for years and uh, and I just walked up to him and I just hung out. I just flipped through flipped through his art. I bought a couple pages, um, and we just talked for like for a long time for a yeah. show. And he, people would come up, and I would kind of move off to the side and get out of the way as I was like flipping through his work and stuff. And it was a much more natural and and it was at the same show. It was actually the same day. Uh, it was just funny the, the thing, but like the, in the one. I wasn't trying to get anything from this guy. You know, yeah. I asked him, I asked him a tip here or there. You know, I talked to him, I complimented like some of the things I liked about the way he did things. Um, and it was just a, a normal conversation. Uh, but then, but then the other thing was, uh, the other thing was just like, you know, not a normal reaction to a person to point and yell at them while you're walking towards them quickly, you know, and then try to dig yourself out of that. So anyway, okay. So that's, that's a couple of things. Um, all right. Um, Scott, Scott, that's by the way, sorry, I just do want to tag onto that. So something to keep in mind too, is like once you're behind a convention booth, um, and, and I don't have like tons of fans, but I've had a few moments in my life where somebody really, like, I don't know how they found my work, but they really love my work. And they found me at a convention. This is especially back when I was conventioning. And they would walk up and they'd look, you could tell. They're, like, nervous as hell. They're geeked out. And um, I just imagine that quantified by, like, somebody who's super famous. Like, yeah. you know, like when I met Jeff Smith, I don't think he was shocked that I was a geek for his work, you know. Right. Um, and there is a thing where you're on the other end of the table Half of your job at that point, at least most people behind the table, they're going to want you to feel normal and calm and yeah. and feel like you're respected and that like they you're valued because like it's awesome. Like nobody gets tired of having their ego fed in that way. <laughs> um, and so, like I, I will say, if you go to a convention and you're not like a creep, like you don't like you know, follow a person to their car or something like that. Like you just kind of, you know, dialogue with someone, even if it's awkward, I think they get it too. And I think if an artist like is a complete jerk to you in that kind of context, like they are either really probably not good people or they just had a really bad day and you caught them at the wrong time. Right. And so, you know, that to me, I, I would say like the biggest thing is just, try to unpsych yourself out, like be psyched about their work, but just like realize they're a human being and you have value to contribute to. And if you come at it from that angle, like, Hey, I've got value that I can contribute to this person. It's going to be a much better conversation. So just tying in, but I will also say just, just to 
back up Corey on this. I've had like 10 moments like that that I'm not going to get into. But it's like when you brought that up, I'm like, oh, man, there have been so many times when I've blown it meeting people I admire, you know. Um, one of them I just put my wife next to and took a picture of, and it was the, the lady who played Annie Hall. Because I was just like, you, you, you're Annie Hall. My wife loves you. Right, let me get a picture. Yeah. The whole time she was just like nice and sweet as can be. But I realized walking away, I'm like, that must be really irritating. Just be like <laughs> walking around the courtyard at LACMA and have some weirdo just be like, hey, you, I need a picture. You, you insist. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, so um, uh, Ox says we are champions, which I completely agree with. I'm not sure what your definition of champions is, but I'll, I'll take it. And uh, Scott says uh, that his go-to question is, what artist work thing is inspiring you currently? Which I think is a great question to kind of get a conversation going. Because I, I love to figure out people's uh, inspiration for things. Um, and then uh, hand health for artists. There's, there's, a, there's a really interesting topic because one of the things that I found uh, recently is as I've gotten older and as I've spent more time at the table... I have had to do a lot more to make sure that I don't get uh, arthritis or carpal tunnel syndrome or whatever. Yeah. And so, um, so I would I would say this: if if at any point in time, and those of you listening to this audio will just have to imagine me holding my hand up, and from the top knuckle all the way down to your elbow, draw kind of a straight line, right? If at any point in time you are pinching your wrist in one way or the other and holding it in that position, that's, that's going to cause you some serious problems. Um, and so one of the things that I found is becoming very aware of the way that I'm holding my tools and holding it in a way that my, my arm naturally falls. And then um, Brandon Dayton has a, has a great video on this where he goes through a series of exercises that you can do. Um, one, one thing that I would suggest a lot there are there are three three tools and they two of them are a bit expensive but the one is only like twenty bucks and it's one of those gyroscope balls and I don't know if you guys have seen one of these gyroscope balls looks like Josh might be grabbing something um, yeah. but the gyroscope ball is you get it going and I've got one back here I can I can show everybody and then you start rotating it and if you just do that for for a minute or two every day what it does is it strengthens the muscles and tendons from your from your elbow joint all the way on up to your knuckles because a lot of your actual hand pain is really happening in your arm. Yeah. Um, and so if you strengthen those, um, th then that can be really helpful. Um, the other thing is something called a body blade, which is a big carbon – it's a piece of carbon fiber with weights at the end of it, and you shake it. And it sounds really gimmicky and stupid. But what it actually does is it resets the proprioceptive – uh, response that your brain has with your shoulder muscles and a lot of problems that you can have in your arm and in your hand are actually neck and shoulder problems because we're hunched yeah. over. Um, and so if you make it a practice to, to kind of take care of those two things with like a body blade and one of those gyroscope balls, and then just be aware of how you're holding your hand, um, you'll, you'll avoid a lot. And the other thing is just like, listen to your body and if if like your hand hurts like you need to take a break yeah. you know like don't push through the pain this isn't this isn't weightlifting because pushing through the pain in an art situation um can be really dangerous and can actually can actually cause some problems yeah um 
100% agree. Uh, if you do start having pain, just get one of these. Like, that's what I was grabbing. It's yeah. covered in here because I have a pug, and they shed like cats. But anyhow, um, you put this on when you sleep, not when you're working, just when you sleep. And um, that can actually create – that can cause a lack of pain because a lot of the repetitive actions you do during the day – you do in your sleep subconsciously like a lot of artists have this problem like i do a lot of cross hatching if i'm sleeping sometimes i'm cross hatching in my sleep and i don't realize it but this like literally stops that and you'll wake up and you won't have pain in your arm if you do that for like a week when when it does get to pain so that's that's like not preventative but that's an after um and it's and it's a nice fix as opposed to letting it get worse and worse and uh, when, it, when it gets really bad, then you're talking cortisone shots, um, which you can only get so many of in certain areas, especially the fine tendons. Like, there's a limit to the amount of times in your life you can get those until it starts having corrosive damage. Right. And so, and and if you think that's like a, oh, that's not me, that's most artists by the time they're 45. So <laughs> it's, it's a good thing to kind of be aware of. Um, the other thing is... Um, you really have to train like you have to train you have to do heart health um you got to do something aerobic for your heart because you're you're gonna need endurance and it's something that i didn't get for a really long time but it's like you have to train for endurance and do training that actually you know like a part of why i use a rowing machine is most of what that exercises is your back yeah. And so that's actually really good to work out because if you work out your back um, in, in non-destructive ways, like if you do a lot of back lifts, you're actually risking your back while you're working your back. Um, but if you do something that is less um, risky, like, like a rowing machine where it's like it's using your back muscles and you're working them and building them and you're exercising parts of your back that you usually wouldn't during the day, What's weird is then you sit at an office job or you sit at a desk um, hunched over a drawing table and you don't get that like massive pain that's like right under the shoulder blade that like almost all of us get um, there, because like it radiates like like what what Corey was describing is totally right. It's um, you know you have your radius and your ulna and the nerves go all the way up to like under your shoulder. So it's like that whole component can cause pain in your hand. Right. It's weird. And vice versa, pain pain inflicted on your hand can cause pain in your back. It's like this weird connected thing. So the more you can kind of actually – it sounds counterintuitive, but if you can work it, um, it's great. Oh, somebody's asking me to put on the wrist thing. I will say like I – when I first had started having wrist pain um, – the old school wrist thing was terrible. So when I had my first in-house job, that's when I had it because you start doing a lot of repetitive actions, especially when you're doing digital art. Um, but now they're like super cozy. Like yeah. you can still use your hand and stuff. So if it gets really bad, you can even wear this when you draw. I find that really restrictive and I find if I just wear it overnight, it's different for each person. But, um, but yeah, Corey was dead on about like, it, you know, it's not something you want to take lightly because these are your tools and you want to take care of your tools because if you're out of tools, you can't build. Yeah. <laughs> this is this is that ball that I was talking about. The inside spins and the outside doesn't. 
Um, and it's it's super useful. Um, also, there's little tricks. Uh, I have found that I take I took the arms off of my chair because I didn't realize whether I was doing this, but I had this giant persistent knot behind my left shoulder blade, and I was actually starting to like kind of walk crooked because of it and it it was super painful and it lasted for months and months and months and i would get massages and i would go to the chiropractor and and like it would help for a couple days then it would come back and i went to this one massage therapist who's a friend of mine and she said um she said so what are you doing to cause this and i was like i don't know i'm at the i'm at the drawing table a lot and she said okay so she came over to my house and she was like oh i see the problem um and what I had been doing was I was putting my entire body weight leaning on my left arm while I drew to free up my right arm. I was like anchoring myself on my elbow with all of the weight. And and so I took the arms yeah. off my chair and and now I actually have to use my back muscles and my abs to keep myself up rather than just like shoving all of the weight on this bone and displacing all of my, you know, whatever. And so it was just kind of interesting. So just... You know, ergonomics um, is a term that gets thrown around a lot, and some products are kind of crap or whatever, but, like, there are some legit products. You know, the way that you use a mouse at a computer can cause you serious serious damage to your hand, um, and so getting one of those little wrist pads is beneficial. Um, but, yeah, so there's there's lots of different things like that. Um, another, another topic, is it important to be reading comics or current comics if you want to be making comics? Ooh. Good one. I would um, say. Oh, go ahead. I would say yes and no, and, and I'll, I'll let you. I'll let you talk, and then I'll. Because I'm, so I'm gonna, I'll, forming. I'll cover the no. How about that? Yeah. <laughs> um, I I think it's I think it's important to be versed in what you're doing, um, but I do think that I see a lot of cartoonists that would probably be better cartoonists if they stopped reading cartoonists while they were cartooning. Um, because, and we've touched on this before, but I think it's really important as an artist to start going to sources outside of your medium. Yeah. And so, um, I, I do think, uh, well, I'm not going to touch on the, the dues cause I also think at the same time you should, <laughs> I'll let Corey cover that. But, um, but I, I think that you do risk when doing that, everything you do being derivative, um, like I think there's a reason that almost all comics are superhero comics or sci-fi comics or fiction, um, like fantasy comics, because I think that most people making those comics are reading fantasy and superhero and science fiction comics. And so the downside of that is if you stick to comics, like you're not going to see the variety that's in science fiction and in fantasy. And, um, not that comics don't deliver that, but I'm just saying your stuff might end up seeming like, like your superheroes might just, if it's a team, it might just seem like a knockoff of fantastic four. And if it's, right. you know, a superhuman mythological man, it might seem like it's just Superman in a suit. And I think if you're reading them a lot, um, while you're making it, it might even look exactly like Superman, except with like a different color, you know, leotard or whatever. So it's like the the thing to be really careful of um, is just 
like if you're going to do it like you know I, I don't know. I'll let Corey touch on it, but uh, but I would say that's that's covering the no, like why how it could be that to read comics. The other thing is just thinking outside of the box and paneling and stuff. The yeah. stuff we were just talking about. Um, if you read the standard stuff, the standard stuff's not always going to be breaking the boundaries. And right. so, how do you break the boundaries? Do you break the boundaries by looking? Um, it, you know what? I should hedge that by saying current comics. So you say that'll yeah so I will I will agree with you uh, real quickly and I think he said that well but I just want to say um, there there's this idea of a creative bank account that I think uh, Jake Parker kind of in, initiated but that that idea that you are going to if you throw that bucket down the well you're gonna you're gonna pull up whatever's in that well right and so if you fill your well only with current pop culture, uh, and you are only a consumer of that, yeah. then, I, then then the only thing that you're going to bring up is going to be derivative, right? Um, and, and, and this is why I say only a consumer. I think you should look at past comics and current comics in addition to, um, you know, like novel covers and posters and gig posters and uh, editorial illustrations and the way that I think you should get look at those is not as a consumer, but I think you should reverse engineer them, right? Yeah. If you read it, if you read a book and you just have a great experience with that book, go back and read it a second time with an engineer's eye and even, even consider getting a second copy and taking out like a red Sharpie and try to figure out what makes it work. If you're struggling with paneling, draw over the paneling to explain to yourself and to get that muscle memory of like, why does this read this way? Why is yeah. it that they're using this unconventional paneling structure and yet I still knew where to go? Where what is happening? And you'll start to see kind of the strings that are holding holding up the marionettes when you reverse engineer other people's work. And that's that's a significant thing. And so I would I would say I think it's important to enjoy yourself and to consume things. And so that's why I think it's okay to read. But I would say beyond reading, you need to reverse engineer the type of things that that are inspiring. Um, and then with with uh, with other things that you can do, um, I would also say like Alan Moore. Um, this is uh, Neil Gaiman was telling a story one time about Alan Moore, and he's like, "You should just follow your interest." And this is different than follow your passion, which is something that I am almost wholeheartedly against. Um, but if you are interested in something, you should go down that rabbit hole, man. And the reason is this: is he said, he said Alan Moore one time called me up and just said, "Hey, you know, I've been super interested in Jack the Ripper lately, and I've like read all these books on him, and I'm like, you know, like I'm just." Like, he's just fascinating. And they just talked about Jack the Ripper for a while. And Neil Gaiman said that at no point in time, at that point in time, was Alan Moore planning on writing from hell. But then because of immersing himself in an interest that he happened to have, um, he was able to come up with come up with a book. And so I think I think um, you should draw from a lot of different things and try to find this is something that Josh has said to me in the past that I really like. Is if you're inspired by somebody, who are their who are their inspirations? And go look yeah. at them, and then who are their inspirations? And eventually, you get to some really interesting things that are very transformative and somewhat original. 
um, based based on what's going on. And if you're drawing from things that are 50 years old or 100 years old or thousands of years old, um, yeah. and you relate them to things that are going on yesterday or that might go on in the future based on like some you know logical extreme or something, um, that's where things get super interesting. And so I would say that you should be reading comics because you need to be versed in it. But then the second time through, you should read with an engineer's eye and reverse engineer it so that you understand um, how it's going. Um, yeah. And, and actually, even the thing you were talking about of looking at influences of influences, um, that's a form of reverse engineering, just a career or the inspiration that drove it. So like um, to me, I love that kind of rabbit hole. And that's led me to some really amazing artists that weren't really in a box because they were inventing the thing. And I think that's always good to kind of look at, um, like dig back and start looking at the guys who actually invented this art form. Um, and the, the first guys who were serializing Sunday strips before they broke them down into like four panel grids and stuff. And you're going to find like an era where the rules weren't even, they didn't even exist. Right. And so like, they're kind of like, Oh, maybe this would work if I divide this in a box, you know, like they didn't even have the terms for what they were doing. And what's cool is, um, and just as a backup to this, before we kind of switch topics, like if you read about the process of Calvin and Hobbes and how he arrived at, um, making those giant, beautiful Sunday pages that are so different from like just a standard Sunday comic at the time that kind of made Calvin and Hobbes like I think they're the thing that first drew most people to Watterson's work. Right. I think mm-hmm. those, those giant spaceman spiff panels and stuff um, where, where it would just be really inventive. All of that started happening when Watterson stumbled upon crazy cat. Like he had already gotten a syndication deal and then he stumbled, he discovered George Harriman and in a very similar way, he talked to other cartoonists. What cartoonists do you like? And all these guys tracked back to this one guy, George Harriman. And then he looked at what George Harriman was doing, like when this whole thing was being crafted and he was like, oh, he was doing it right and we've all screwed it up. So I'm going to go do pages laid out like that. So that's how that came to be. And, um, and, and there's a million examples like that. I just think it's interesting because so many people credit Watterson as being an innovative voice, and he is. But part of what made him innovative was, like, getting outside of the current box. He wasn't just looking at his competitors. He was looking at guys who, like, predated him and were already passed away and, like, yeah. were already breaking the boundaries back then. Um, Scott in the chat said, I hear what you guys are saying, but a rock and roller or director of movies isn't going to listen to a ton of records and watch a ton of movies um, uh, or is going to, but they shouldn't only listen to punk music. And I think that's a really good point. Like when you dig into like hardcore punk rock, like a lot of those guys were inspired by like Bob Dylan, you know, like right. it's like a lot of early punk rockers were inspired by stuff that like you wouldn't think cause it's like hippie stuff, you know? And, and yet they, they got punk rock riffs out of it and blues and, um, and so on. So I, I think that um, that's a really good point. So anyway, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, um, uh, Ox, Ox uh, is challenging me here, and, and I love this. Um, he said, wait, I'm sure I've heard this from you before, but why are you against chasing passions? And I want to be clear. 
So I want to be clear. So my my problem with that is is probably twofold. One is I feel like the word passion is the wrong choice. We've made a we've made a bad choice in society uh, in choosing the word passion for what we're talking about. And yeah. um, a passion a passion is an emotion. Um, it it is fleeting. It is hard to control. And any anything that you can imagine being passionate about is is a momentary blip. It's a spike, right? And and if you relate it to like intimacy, physical intimacy, um, you know, there's there's a little bit leading up to it. There's a spike. There's a quick fall off, and then you're done, right? And that that can be repeated. But at the same time, there's nothing really about that that is consistent, yeah. um, proven, and uh, you know, scheduled. And so um, if you can you can become a little bit lost if you live your life a hundred percent by the fall of your passions, right? So um, that's that's one problem that I have with it is the word itself. I feel like I, I prefer the word hustle. Um, you know, you should choose a side hustle. You should choose something that you are interested in. Um, and interest is something that is a little bit longer lasting. It is. Um, it's something that 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 could span decades or, yeah. or or months or years, whereas passion is is really a moment. You know, like I'm I'm really riled up about this thing right now. I'm passionate in this moment, right? And uh, and 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 the problem with a lot of beginners um, is that they wait for inspiration to strike rather yeah. than causing inspiration to strike because they're doing that thing consistently. And I feel like telling somebody like telling somebody like Samurai Ox, follow your passions, he's gonna do great with that, right? Because he's yeah. he's 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 driven, he's scheduled, he was able to um, you know, he's able to to show up every day and do the work, right? So I'm not I'm not worried about I'm not worried about Ox here, you know like getting distracted, but I am worried about maybe the, the 17 year old, the 22 year old, the 25 year old that hears like follow your passions and they've got an, an okayish job that's paying the bills. And then they, they quit their job and they, they go and they, you know, go do the thing that they just saw in a movie because they're super excited about it and they didn't really think it through and they're not very good at it. And then they starve and then their dream becomes a nightmare because you know, it's causing some problems. The other thing is, most people that are following their passions don't finish projects yep. um, because there are a significant amount of the project is process and process is boring and process yeah. is not fun and process is hard and process is often drudgery and repetitive. And and if you, if you only follow the passions, right, then I'm just going to draw – the splash page. I'm just going to draw the pinup. I'm just going to draw the thing. But at the end of that, I don't have a deliverable. I don't have a product. I don't have a finished thing where I can say, I made this and it's a 40 page children's book uh, that I hand inked and I drew every leaf with a brush. If I was passionate about that, then that would, that book would be a lot different than if I fell in love with the process. I agree. And, um, so there's this weird thing that happened to me early in college, and I'm so glad it did. Um, I, I was working on Numb, which was like my first comic, and I was hating it. 
and I was feeling really weird because I was like, I'm finally kind of at the skill level where I can kind of do this. Why am I like hating every step of the process? And uh, and I was lucky enough to go to this exhibit, and I've mentioned it before, and I'm going to mention a cartoonist I always mention on here. Um, but uh, but so I had mentioned um, this before. It's it, I, I went to a Masters of American Comics, which was this big exhibition um, where it was like all of these classic cartoonists displaying um, original pages, um, and I think it was at the Hammer in L.A. And it was a traveling exhibit. So it was at a lot of the major museums and there was a book published. It's a great book to own as a resource. Um, it's actually where I discovered like George Harriman and, um, EC Seeger. Like I hadn't even looked into Seeger's stuff, like his Popeye stuff, but they had all these guys, um, original pages, like original Will Eisner pages, like on the wall. And I was looking at it and I was filled with inspiration, but I was still feeling like hopeless. Like, well, I still, hate this thing so what am i doing with it why am i still doing it yeah and then i i actually was lucky enough and i've mentioned him like twice in this conversation but chris Ware, i went to see speak live and i'm like 20 something at the time like 22 um trying to tackle my first comic finally and uh and chris Ware goes like somebody asked him like do you have any advice to give cartoonists and he said um i want to tell everybody here and it's going to sound bad and he's like, but it's going to sound bad to people who aren't doing comics. <laughs> and he's like, you're going to hate it. You're going to hate, like, it's horrible. You're going to hate the process, and yet you're still going to do it. And he's like, and that's the reality of comics. He's like, it's never fun. I've never met anybody who has fun doing it. He's like, I, I was a big fan of Chester Brown, I guess, like, or not Chester Brown. Um, uh, I'm sorry, uh, the, the guy the diary cartoonist and blanking out. He did the Darth Vader and son. What was that cartoonist name? I know, I know the book. Uh, anyway. I can't remember the cartoonist, but I know who you're talking about. So it's like a noodly style. And he, he actually helped that guy build his career. And he's like, he was sending me these minis and he's like, I kept being really eager to meet him. Cause I was like thinking, Oh, he, he must be having fun. He's the guy who has it figured out and he's having fun. Cause he's just doodling. Right. And then he meets him and he hates doing it. Like every <laughs> cartoonist, <laughs> kind of hates doing the process and he said that and there was a bunch of people who like just like he said don't work on comics who were looking horrified like how dare you say that and then i saw like in the room there were like four guys kind of like me who were like thank you <laughs> like, right because i realized like from that like oh it's it's like really hard to do and um and yet we kind of do it and i thought that was um for me that was a real helpful thing to hear at the time where I, I might have just been like, screw this. And instead I was like, oh, this is normal. Like this is a really tedious, hard process, you know? And I, and I think that's one of the great things about the hundreds. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Because like when people go through that challenge, especially when it's their first comic, they're like, crap, this is hard. And right. like that's a, that's a good hurdle to get over if you really love comics. It's just like if you really love you know, um, somebody you're married to or something like you're going to have like hiccups and tests of that love because it gets hard. You know, yeah. it doesn't always stay easy. And so I think that, um, anyhow, sorry, you, you were going <laughs> to, I was going to say, I think, uh, an important qualifier to what you're saying is that there is a difference between happy and fun and joy and satisfaction. And I, yes. think, I think creation of any kind 
is rarely fun, but is often satisfying and can bring joy. And I think the difference is that one, kind of like passion uh, versus a hustle, one is a momentary blip and it falls off quickly. The other takes a little bit of time to build, but has a lasting effect. You know, like there are many times in the projects that I've done where it has definitely not been fun. But at the at, at certain points and milestones, um, I've built and maintained a level of satisfaction um, that that has given me joy. And when I when I think about it, I think you know I've got I've got 15 pages of that thing done, you know, yeah. or I finished that many, you know, or or man, I I really leveled up on that on that on that brush technique where I lift it just right at the end. Like I just did a full page where I yeah. didn't screw one of those up, you know, and there's a, there's a significant value in becoming something versus enjoying something. And I, exactly. and I think, I think that's where, I think that's where um, you're kind of coming from is, is so I don't, I don't want people to walk away from this and say, Oh good. Uh, Josh and Corey thinks making comics suck and we shouldn't do that. Right. I think you should do that because it's not fun and because it's hard, because you will become someone who is more satisfied with your life than if you were merely consuming things that entertained you. Yeah, and I think the reason that impacted me so much isn't that I hate the process as much as I did when I first started. I just, um, I think I think it's healthier to kind of explain the challenge of it for people going through it, like that's going to give more encouragement a lot of the time mm. than the person who's like, I just love every day because you're going to dissuade most people going through it when they're yeah. like, wow, this building's really hard to draw and I want to give up. It's, it's kind of like, um, you know, if you heard a professional bodybuilder, it's just like, you know, like Arnold Schwarzenegger at his peak and when, you know, people asked him about working out, he was just like, it's a joy. Like every second's wonderful. It's like there, there is a joy to the process and there's right. a, a point where you get assimilated to it and you get good at it and you get some fleeting moments of, of enjoyment from it. There's a finish to it. But at the same time, the process is always work. And so the work can be fun, but it's still work. And, um, uh, Ox was asking something, um, saying, you know how your current project is going to end and the drive of passion isn't getting you to that end, right? And so here's the thing I wanted to tack onto the passion thing that Corey mentioned. Um, uh, I, th I think that um, I agree with Corey like 100% on that because I also feel like one of the worst things is that follow your heart thing. Um, because like, what if, what if I'm a serial killer? Should I follow my heart? Like, that's a really dangerous thing to tell people. What does your heart you know? tell you? Yeah. It's Cause it's like, sometimes your heart might tell you terrible things. And like, why would you follow that? You know, like my heart might like, let's say I get cut off on the freeway. My heart might tell me to just plow into the car in front of me. Is that a smart idea? No. You know, <laughs> you don't follow your heart or your passions all the time. Cause sometimes your passions are idiotic. Um, but, but Tying into that, that, what Corey was describing to follow has passion in it. Right. It's just passion isn't the pursuit. It's it's sometimes the result is passion. Sometimes yes. there's passion in the process, but that shouldn't be the end game because because like he was saying, um, and and uh, Aristotle like said it. 
before that, but it's like, um, and I'm going to mention this for the second time, in, the, in not in this podca- podcast, but in our episodes, um, horror vacui, because I'm in love with that word, but <laughs> it means nature hates a vacuum. And um, the idea is like, you know, we're people as artists, we have this vacuum that we're trying to kind of fill. And the thing that Corey's talking about is like in the vacuum that you're trying to fill as an artist, the passion is it's, it's continually needing refilling and it never ends. Um, it, it never has like a moment where it's like, ah, oh, my cup is full. I'm happy. You know, that's why passion's like a dangerous thing to just kind of make as a pursuit. Although I'm sure some of it might just be how you define passion. Or right. Whatever. Yeah. And I think a lot of people, when they say that they're passionate about something, are, are not defining it so pedantically as I am and they're, and they're fine. But I, but I will say this. Hellboy 2 opens with one of the best uh, intros to any movie. And it's like this little puppeteering claymation kind of odd little animation style and they're talking about like the elves and the other people and then they said that man mankind was created with a hole in his heart and was constantly seeking to fill it and uh and that's why they built cities and destroyed nature and all this stuff and that that's kind of the initial conflict is is between like the the fairy folk and the and 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 humans and you know the fact that Everybody except mankind was super super cool with the way things were, and mankind being you know unhappy with it, constantly innovated and developed and progressed to yeah. the point where they're destroying things. Yeah. Um, and I think I, to a certain extent that's true. We are constantly trying to, and this is this is a different, this is a, a slightly different topic, but I think it's interesting to think about. Um, people joke about like retail therapy. People joke about eating your feelings. People joke about those things. And these are things that I definitely do. I'd like to think that I'm not the only person. But like when I feel bad, I think I, I should buy something. That will make me not feel bad. Or I need to eat. Right? Or whatever. Whatever whatever temporary fix. Um, we seek the, the easy ways around deeper Issues, and I think the problem is that we were created. Whether whether you go with a biological imperative model or 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 a, you know some sort of creator, or some sort of universe, or whatever, whatever whatever it is, there's something different about humans, and that thing is a constant drive and a constant desire for improvement and innovation. If you look at like Daniel Pink when he talks about drive, he talks about a number of different things. One of them is autonomy, you know, the ability to make my own choices. And you see that in little kids. I could do it myself, right? Yeah. And then another one is actual trackable progression and growth. And uh, and I think that when we are uh, satiating ourselves and gorging ourselves on the materialism and the capitalism and, the, and all that of the world and surrounding ourselves with trinkets and things, we're trying to fill fill a bucket that has a hole in the bottom because yeah. those those things don't stick but if you actually understand what it is that that drive is for humanity is meant to level up not to amass and consume but to become and i think that's why art and music and writing and a lot of these creative things are significantly important is because yeah. whether you look at it from Maslow's hierarchy of needs or whether you look at it from Daniel Pink or whether whatever whatever angle you look at it, 
Um, You are becoming something that is better than you were yesterday through struggle and effort. Um, You know, and and biblically, you know, by the sweat of thy brow and, um, you know, like if you go off of like Buddhism, you know, it's, it's lose yourself. You know, in 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 the effort. If you go off of existentialism, it's it's living in living in the moment, but with it with an honesty and a, and, a, and an authentic authentic effort towards improvement and towards ownership of your thoughts and your feelings. And I think yeah. no matter what decent uh, way that you think about life is, that you have to admit that becoming something better than you are today is the significant and lasting driving force in humanity. And yeah. that most of us, and I, I include myself in this, try to numb that by, yeah. um, you know, uh, activities and entertainment, you know, and, and some of us are using, you know, drugs and alcohol and sex and rock and roll and whatever else to try to numb that calling, that drive that each of us has individually. And, uh, yeah. and I think art is, is a way, uh, and, and a fairly effective way um, to get a lasting happiness. And I do agree that my problem with the word passion is not that passion exists, uh, but that passion isn't a goal. Passion is a yes. result that happens when you do do that thing. And I've become yeah. and exceptionally passionate about stuff yeah. through the struggle. But I don't what's ironic passion. Is, yeah, and what's ironic is it ends up being a very kind of like um, Yoda-ish or Buddhist kind of thing where it's like, um, what you're pursuing actually gets further away. So, like, meaning the weird thing is you find well, I've found um, more passion in in the process of pursuing the work um, than I have from pursuing passion. So that's the weirdest thing is like if you pursuing passion as an artist, you're going to get less passion because you're going to draw stuff that just doesn't come out like you want it. You know. You get way more passion when you nail it, like Corey was talking about, when you have those moments where you're like, finally figured out how to lift that brush in just a way to where the feathering line just ends in this perfect thing. There's this moment of like nailing it or the passion of like, um, let's say you're a sports person or whatever, and you win a game and you've practiced all summer, you know, and you have that rush. Like you can't get that from just playing games that let people let you win all the time. And, th- and that's the point is like um, uh, there's so much great stuff in the chats. Um, Ox was mentioning he genuinely loves making comics and seeing the progression he's had. And I think that's a huge difference between love and passion, too. That's yeah. I think that's what Corey's getting at, too. I'm My point is if you really love comics, you'll bear with it in sickness and in health. You know what I mean? It's like that's that's a love vow and it's weird. But I think most people doing comics there's not a giant financial reward. So those who stick with it really do. You, you kind of have to love it. And I think that was the purpose of where talking about it is like, weirdly enough, like the fact that you're going to continue doing it means you love it. You yeah. know, and Scott, um, Scott actually team. brought up that exact thing. He said, working on your art is like marriage. You've picked something that you care enough about to go through all of the really hard times because you know how passionate the good times get. Which, is, oh, which I think is a really good way cool. of saying that. I hadn't even gotten to that comment. That's awesome. So we're right on the same page. Um, yeah, I love it. That's so exciting. Yeah, and and yeah, there's just really good stuff in the chats. 
Um, we've got uh, we've got drawn sword graphics. Uh, spinning the camera around in the same scene for a different shot each panel is a challenge. Getting it just right from every angle and slows the process down. Um, and you can really go nuts about getting it right. Uh, and then there's some debate about which Hellboy I was actually talking about. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, um, and and here's some here's some interesting here's some interesting things. This is something um, Squatchy Inc. who I just followed on Instagram and has some really really cool looking stuff that he's got for sale. If you guys want to check that out, um, is uh, he's saying that he definitely lost the passion for tattooing ever after having to do so much hair uh, stuff you're not into. Uh, or so much stuff that you're not into, and I think I think there's a there's an interesting interesting thing with that that there could be another topic. Um, once you take somebody's money, you have to do what they want. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and 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 I know that I know that everybody has different goals, and I don't want to like force my opinion on other people. Um, but I really think that uh, a, a very good model, one of the ways to do this thing that really works. Um, is get a job that doesn't kill your soul that will cover your cover your income yeah. and then do your art for yourself and your and your audience right yeah. and and because if if at the end of that people are supporting you because you are you uh, you're you're never going to get over that you're never going to run out of that steam you're never going to be like Oh, I'm so sick of people being supportive of who I am, you know. Uh, whereas if you do client work, I'll tell you exactly what happened to me. Early on in my career, right after I graduated from college with my bachelor's, um, I was like, I'm going to get into photography because DSLRs had just become a thing. And, uh, you know, and I was like, hey, there's this new thing where digital cameras are new or whatever. And so I bought a digital camera. And, uh, and I started shooting and I fell in love with it. And then I immediately, just like I used to do all the time, and most people I know do, um, I tried to validate my, my hobby, my passion, my, my side hustle, whatever you want to call it, this thing that I had fallen in love with. I tried to validate it with money and people yeah. started paying me money and I immediately began to hate it. And, and I think it was because looking back, you know, 15 years later, I can look at that and I can say, I think what I really loved about it was the composition and not the actual photography. Um, because when I, when I did illustration, uh, you know, I don't know, eight, eight to 12 years later, I was like, Oh yeah, this is, this is that same feeling, but it's, it seems deeper. But the interesting thing about it is oftentimes I feel like we feel the need to validate our art by putting, uh, by saying it's only good if people are willing to pay for it. It's only yeah. good if I have clients. I'm only worthy or worth something uh, by a dollar amount. And I think I think that's a a way to look at it. But I believe it's kind of short sighted and it's hollow. Yeah, and I'm I'm 100% with you on that. I um personally like I think that um there there's two things that that kind of bother me that tie into this. One is when people pretend that because you're an artist, you should be starving. Um, I think that because you're an artist, you should be making something and making some money because you have a skill that takes a lot to acquire. You're a specialist and you can make money doing it. So why wouldn't you? Yeah. Um, but I do find that 
this is just something I've seen across the board, even some people who aren't public about it. But most people I know who make a living doing art, um, unless it's their own property, sometimes even if it is their own property, have a desire to do something that's just chasing the art. Um, and it's a weird thing. So most illustrators I know at first have like this, you know, that young passion and you're excited and you're getting a kick out of the fact that you, um, you know, are getting paid to draw because like prior to that, if you're at work and somebody goes, Hey, can you draw me a picture? And your manager's like, yeah, go for it, buddy. You feel like, cool, I'm getting paid to draw. Um, but once you realize, like once you kind of get in the reality of what it is to be paid to draw, like Corey was saying, you know, if someone's paying you money, it's your responsibility, especially if you've signed a contract to do so to fulfill that contract. Yeah. Um, and sometimes that means compromise. In fact, most of the time that means compromise and, um, a compromised artist is usually a pretty unhappy artist. And unfortunately, most income for artists requires compromise, even big team projects. So that's why you'll hear interviews with guys who worked on the biggest films in Disney. And yet they're really geeked out about talking about this little book they're drawing. You know, like they want to talk about that more than the big Disney movie. How is that? They were they were part of this machine that made something that is legendary, and yet they still have this desire. So my tip on that is find a way to fulfill both, right? Yeah. Make make your nut as an artist. <laughs> yeah. You know, get your money, um, you know, hoard your income, um, you know, but also keep your sanity and your soul by doing what we're doing. The 48-hour art check by doing um, something that's going to keep you accountable to make stuff that's outside of that pursuit of money. Because if you get lost in the pursuit of money, you find yourself doing weird things like some artists I really admired who had some PR firm be like, you know what? You're a rock star. Make a hip-hop album, man. You're cool. And they make the worst album ever because it's not authentic. Not that it's hip-hop. It's just that it's terrible. It's not authentic. Yeah. Um, and uh, by the way, I am totally referring to like that, what they unfortunately convinced Chris Cornell to do. Like he made a hip hop album and it was one of the, <laughs> one of the biggest PR, like the PR firm should be destroyed that made that happen. But, <laughs> but the point being like, you can catch yourself being that person. And if that's the end of your self-definition for your career or your art, I think it's going to be a pretty hollow one. And I think it leads to a lot of misery and with guys who are hugely successful. So, so my suggestion is don't wait for the big break. Um, you know, when it's like, like I meet so many guys who are like, when I'm retired from Disney or when I'm, when I'm retired, retired from Marvel comics, like I hear it all the time. It's like when I have time, no, don't wait for when you have time because by the time you have time, your soul might be eaten and you might be on a, on a deathbed, you know? Yeah. So work on the thing you need to work on, feed that, but, you know, also feed your family, you know, <laughs> like, I don't know if that makes sense, but yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think everybody's wired differently and everybody's situation is different. And, uh, just because I'm doing it one way or Josh is doing it one way or Scott or yeah. Ox or, you know, Abe or whoever, yeah, that doesn't mean that you doing it differently is less than or more than. I, I just think you got to figure out what works for you. An interesting thing along those lines, um, 
I, I have a lot of cousins, like a, like a ton. Uh, and uh, they, they do the most interesting and creative things. I've got a cousin who's a firefighter um, that started getting into leather work and just makes really interesting leather work. I've got a cousin who um, works for NASA and is, is one of their, um, one of the scientists that works on the fuel, uh, you know, and the propulsion systems. And, uh, and he, he took up blacksmithing and, and metallurgy. Um, I've got a, I've got a cousin who works at DreamWorks and does, and does textures. Um, and he started turning wood like on a lathe and, um, it's really interesting to me that um, kind of no matter what walk of life, I mean, I've got a cousin who's a Harley mechanic um, and, uh, and in his own time works on his own Harley. Right. But it's, but it's different because what he's doing to his own is what he wants to do rather than what he's doing for his, his clients. And so it's interesting to see every, every different walk of life and, and all these guys kind of going down, going down those, those paths. And so I would say like, just because you do something at work doesn't mean that you can't do that thing at home and that it, it, it will be different. And uh, just because you're not getting paid for something doesn't mean that it doesn't have value. Like you need to find the mix for you that works. Um, and, yeah. and, and, and maybe that's a couple times a week. Maybe that's every day. Um, you know, maybe, maybe that's for half an hour. Maybe that's for six hours. Maybe that's quitting your job. Maybe it's keeping your job. Uh, and, but, uh, but I really think that human beings are not fulfilled without creation and growth yeah and and squatchy ink like he, what he was describing so he was talking about being a tattoo artist and, and just kind of like losing the fulfillment from it because it's like 15 years of doing pretty much the same tattoos for the same people and eventually it's just you're drawing hairs you know and um and i've been there i mean i when i was freelancing i did it for about 15 years and i just got to that point where i was like i don't even care what people are hiring me to draw and you guys have heard that story but um but it's i'm glad also that he followed up by mentioning that he loves it because it allows him to paint and work on his comic in his free time and i think that not only that by working on your comic and working on painting in your free time might actually reinvigorate what you're doing during your paid time because it's like it the most miserable people i ever meet at day jobs are people who have nothing going outside of the day job yeah um because then you're looking for all your fulfillment in a scenario where it's not all about you and the beauty of comics is it is all about you it's all about your creation you have complete control over it's why so many animators like do graphic novels when they have a moment because when you're animating with a team, like, you know, imagine how many compromises you have to make. You know, you, you board a really cool story sequence that never sees the light of day. Whereas you sit down with a comic, you can, you know, by putting in a year maybe, tell a really good story that you're completely in control of. The lighting, the color, the beats, the, the writing. Um, it's the unique thing of comics and it's why I think... Um, I always encourage everybody to do that because if you don't and you're built to do it, like you're just going to eat yourself. Like it's weird, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, I'm so excited about the lively chat today. It's very yeah. nice. Okay. I've got a, I've got three challenges unless, unless you want to, unless you want to end, do you have, do you have anything you want to wrap up with? No, I just, um, I do want to say thanks to everybody. Uh, Scott said he enjoyed the 100th episode and put the rock horns up again, so we appreciate that. Um, and just thanks thanks to everybody for, 
for joining us and following us along the 48 hour art check. And, uh, and, you know, hopefully we can like rocket to another hundred. These things happen yeah. pretty quick. This happened way quicker than I thought. That's part of why we didn't have all these guests right. on our hundreds. Cause <laughs> like do the 48 hour art check. Another nice byproduct is before you know it, you have so much content. It's crazy. Yeah. And I agree. And this episode was great. And I think it was great because of everybody in the chats. And, uh, and so, uh, thanks to everybody in the chats. Cause that was awesome. Um, is really good. We'll have to do this more often where, where we just kind of crowdsource it. I promise not to do it every episode. Um, and if you're listening to this podcast, uh, later, um, and you would like to be part of the chat, just, just jump on to, uh, jump onto YouTube with us. And you can always find that at coreycurcom slash 48 HR. And, and that's Josh's channel and my channel. And you can subscribe there because, um, it's 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 pretty cool. Like the synergy of the synergy of everybody kind of kind of pitching in. Um, so here's the first challenge. Uh, if you guys haven't already, or even if you have, I'd like you to think of two people that would be interested in this show, um, whether it be the audio of it or whether it be the video of it, and tell them about it and uh, and and share it because I think um, the the bigger this the bigger this thing gets, the more people would benefit. And that's not because I think I'm that cool or whatever, but because the community that is involved in this type of topic tends to be some of the coolest people out there and super supportive. And so the more of us that there are that are like into like encouraging each other to do art and become something cool, I think that's just awesome. So that's challenge number one, share this with people. Um, Challenge number two is if, if you are thinking of doing, um, you know, a long form or a series of short form, uh, cha- uh, challenges or projects or products or whatever, um, grab a buddy and do and do the 48-hour art check. Um, and if you don't think you can do the 48, do once a week or something. Do it live. Share it publicly. Um, it's, it's an incredible... And we've got episodes that you can go back and look at on how to do it and things like that. Um, but it's an incredible experience and um, it's really neat. And if you do that, we want to know about it. Um, I, I want to begin featuring people that are doing that. And, uh, and there's, there's some people that are kind of waiting in the wings that I know about that are, that are getting ready to do stuff like this. Uh, I talked to somebody today who's doing this privately and they're not posting it publicly, um, but they're getting a lot out of it. And he had kind of been meeting with, meeting with somebody. And so do that. The third thing is a little bit unrelated, but since I've got you all here, uh, I'm going to be doing another sticker stint, um, except this time I'm going to do a two week sticker stint and I want to throw down the gauntlet and challenge everybody to do this with me. The last two weeks of February, I want, I want everybody to create uh, a sticker a day for 14 days straight. Um, and, uh, if you do that, uh, you're going to, you're going to find some really interesting benefits. But in addition to that, it's just rad. Right. And so the idea is, and, and you can go to, I'm plugging my website a lot, but you can go to coreycurcom slash sticker stint, S T I N T like a stint in jail or a stint, uh, you know, whatever short period of intense time. Um, and you can, you can go and check that out. But what I, what I recommend is that you, you start a day zero and the day zero is start sketching, start getting ideas because zero multiplied by any number is still zero. And so it doesn't count as your first day. And so spend a week or two, um, getting a bunch of ideas together and then see if you can start and finish a, a different idea every day because closing that loop often um, becomes 
it, it, it's super satisfying and, and you be able to, you're faster, you get better, you level up really quick a couple times the, the first time that I did it. So I'm just going to throw that gauntlet down and, uh, and Josh, one of these days he's going to do a sticker stand and just blow everybody away. I don't know if it'll be this time, but, but one of these days it's going to be awesome. I might, man. I had this run a long time ago where I did a t-shirt design a day yeah. for like two months straight. And I ended up with a lot of my more known shirt designs out of that little run, as well as a couple like just total bombs. But it was <laughs> it was exactly like you're describing it, where it's like there there was this moment where just like it it became less hard to conceptualize because you just started going with your gut, right. and it and it made me a lot faster as a graphic designer and illustrator. So I think that's. Um, that does sound like fun. I'm not sure if I'll be able to take it whilst working on the hundred days and on quarterly stories, but we'll, we'll give it a shot. Um, I have to mention what Ox said, cause you'll notice I cracked up about like five minutes ago. So Ox said, uh, when, when we were thanking everybody for joining this chat, he said, you're welcome for us bringing the thunder. <laughs> and that's true. You guys brought it. So thank you. Um, and then, uh, uh, like just once, oh, and then Ox was saying he might uh, get it going again with Jan, which would be awesome because because uh, I loved those and and um, it's great to see you guys encourage each other even outside of the forty eight hour uh, making art and stuff. So we want to encourage that kind of more, like the whole inception of this. Like you know, it's weird to think that like a hundred episodes, Corey and I were like at four in the morning just kind of shooting shooting the for perver- proverbial. Uh, I can't think of it's a replacement, <laughs> but anyway, we were just talking and, uh, it was a super late at night and, um, I, we just had this idea of like, wouldn't it be weird to have like, kind of like a support group for artists? Cause we were both working on projects and we were like, yeah, I mean, it's great to make like YouTube videos and content and stuff, but like, sometimes you just need to talk about your progress and your goals and yeah. almost like an AA kind of thing. And then we were like, Wait, yeah, like what if it were like, and it just started kind of inventing itself as this crazy idea. And, um, and you know, a hundred episodes in, I'm really excited to just kind of see the fruit of it because it's been cool. Um, you know, it, it's been cool for forcing me to get to the art table on a daily basis in a weird way because I do always feel that pressure before we go live. I'm like, I gotta have my images for the show. And, that helps so much because there are days where I'm like, I'm not feeling it, but I, but I got to do a 48 hour art check. So I got to do the art and it's a nice little, it's another little trick in the tool belt to kind of fool yourself into doing art. And like, that's the, that's the goal. If you guys can join that, that's great. Um, and I do like the idea of the sticker stint. So maybe, I don't know, we'll, we'll see where we're at. When is it you're going to do last, last two weeks of February is what I'm thinking right now. If I can wrap my comic by then, maybe. Okay. If I can wrap the wrap the hundreds, I'm gonna try. We'll see. Yeah. Um. Cool. Um. So and you I'll, guys. I'll say Squatchy Inc. Uh, he's he's in for the sticker challenge, and uh, I'd rather be drawing is Scott's channel, and they do an art check on Sunday nights, and so make sure to check that out because I I popped in on them, uh, and, and it's pretty interesting, and so make sure you do that. Um, yeah, so that's great. We, we went super long, almost two hours. I'll tell you what, uh, this is, this has been a good, uh, I was, 
I was a little bummed that we hadn't really planned anything for the 100th episode, but yeah. I'm glad that I'm glad that everybody showed up because that, it made it pretty awesome. I'm kind of excited. Like this is this is what I always hoped uh, would happen was that there'd be people that noticed that this is happening and and bothered to like care, and so it's yeah. it's pretty cool. Um, you guys are rad, and uh, thanks for watching and listening. And uh, if you want to check out my stuff, you can go to CoreyKerr.com. The two the two sites that I talked about, the sticker stint is CoreyKerr.com slash sticker stint. Um, and the other one is uh, CoreyKerr.com slash 48HR, where you can, you can find... Um, basically this podcast, the, the podcast version of these videos. And if you want to check out Josh's stuff, you can go to quarterlystories.com. And uh, he's working on two different comics right now. One is quarterlystories.com. The other is part of the 100s anthology. And if you're not familiar with the 100s, it's a group of people that are doing the 100 days of making comics. And we are putting together um, an anthology. And so stay tuned because we're going to be kickstarting that. And it's going to be really awesome. There'll be stories from tons. I know, and I literally mean tons. It's not just like three or four guys. It's like upwards of 30, 40 people or something. It's going to be a big book and it's going to be rad. Um, and that's what Josh and I have been working on. Uh, lately. So um, go check that out at quarterlystories.com. Check mine out at coreykerr.com. And uh, Sam has a quick question. I make my stickers on the iPad. Um, most of them I do, just because I do it mobily and I try to get it done uh, pretty quick. And I'll probably make some videos on that as well. Anyway, thanks everybody. That was really cool. We will see you guys on Monday where we do this whole thing again, but not as long. <laughs>